Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today I am joined by Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, Kyle. I'm doing well. It is Monday. It is Monday. I am uh, very exhausted on this Monday. I'm ready for this Monday to come to a close. Uh, But we are also ready to share this podcast with you. So today I'm going to share an interview that I did with Sarah Totanchi and Marissa McCall Dodson at the Southern Center for Human Rights. We had a conversation about criminal justice reform um, and the progress that's been made on these policies since the deal administration and what is potentially at risk uh, with this year's election coming up. Uh, Governor Deal was a leader in criminal justice reform, um, but he is going to be replaced by somebody who either agrees with him or at least proclaims to agree with him in Stacey Abrams or somebody in Brian Kemp, who's been, been very critical of similar, pol- similar policies proposed by Stacey Abrams on the campaign trail. And then for our second topic this week, we are going to take a look at the response to Hurricane Michael down in South Georgia. Um, I have found it interesting the way in which the governor campaigns have responded to this uh, life-threatening situation that's that's happened down in South Georgia and the ways in which they have seen their campaigns as potentially providing support Uh, to people living down in the southwest corner of our state. But first, let's check in on some news. Um, So we have the latest poll from the AJC is out taking stock of Abrams and Kemp as we head down the stretch in this governor's race. Kemp leads Abrams 45-44 with 7% undecided. It was like a 2.5% percentage point margin of error on that poll. Uh, So this race is statistically tied, essentially. Um, Another interesting tidbit that came out of this poll was that Trump's approval rating is actually up in the state of Georgia from 42% to 46% in the last, uh, since the last AJC poll about a month ago. Um, But still a bare majority, 50.3% disapprove of the way the president is doing his job. Um, Megan, what is your takeaway from some of these top line numbers in this poll as we head towards these November elections? Well, I just found it kind of concerning that 64% of white women polled to approve of Trump's handling of his job. Like I'm a white woman and I'm not in that 64%. And that means that half more than half of people who look like me don't think like me which you know is fine takes all types to make the world go around but i'm i guess i'm just i feel very aware of my privilege and the things that trump does not acknowledge about myself and people of the white race and then people of minority races and other people so i just can't understand how you can be like totally behind what trump is doing yeah, this seemed to be a big red flag for Abrams and her quest to to take the governor's mansion. When you look, when you narrow it down to white women in the poll on support for Kemp or Abrams, Kemp actually leads that 69 to 27. That's Kemp getting 69% of the vote among white women in Georgia in that recent poll. If you've consumed really any political coverage about the midterms in the last few weeks, um, you would have seen a lot of outlets taking a close look at the role that college-educated white women living in the suburbs are likely to play 
on this upcoming fall's national elections. Really, the the battle for the House of Representatives, the U.S. House, is probably going to hinge on how much of that group uh, moves towards the Democrats and away from the Republicans. Um, but, you know, and, we, and we've seen sort of a record-setting gender gap between men and women um, in party preference in this year's midterm elections and in polling leading up to it. But it does seem as though Georgia and uh, women in Georgia are somewhat resistant to the broader national movement uh, with women headed towards the Democrats. Yeah, it's a little weird. Um, If you guys haven't gotten a chance to take a look at it, there is an interactive version of the polling results. And I think one of the things that I really find interesting is sorting through the different age groups to see how everything changes um, just based on age. So check that out if you get a second. It's pretty neat. What's the gap for young voters? I think it's like 18 to 29 or something. Yeah, so it's 18 to 29. And then the next range is 30 to 44. How do 18 to 29s break out? If the election for governor were being held today and the candidates were Brian Kemp, the Republican, Stacey Abrams, the Democrat, and Ted Metz, the Libertarian, for whom would you vote? And then so Brian Kemp was 34%, Stacey Abrams was 44%, Ted Metz was 5%, and then 15% are still undecided. Interesting. That's the other demographic that I think may make a big difference in this race, but the the challenge that campaigns can tell you about the political consultants can tell you about is that that 18 to 29 group leans very democratic but it's difficult to get that group to turn out so it'll it'll be interesting to see how those numbers actually shape out and how much of the electorate is actually made up of those voters in the fall um so speaking of voting today is the beginning of the early vote in georgia or monday is you're probably listening to this on tuesday Um, But that means, just so you know, if you are looking to early vote in the state, you can do that now. Um, Early voting in the state was marked by a lot of technical difficulties in Fulton, in Cobb counties. In Cobb County, there were lines as long as two hours long because of some computer issues they were having over there. Um, So typically, you would early vote to avoid the line. You weren't so lucky today. Uh, But hopefully those are issues that are going to get ironed out as we get closer to the general election. Yeah, they actually said they were working on them today. And there were ways that you could provisionally vote. Or if you had the time to wait, you could wait to vote. So it wasn't that they were turning people away. uh, They interviewed a few people and nobody reported seeing anyone turned away. The ACLU has a good number of voting resources, especially if you have trouble at the polls. It talks about helping you locate your polling place and voting early, the ID requirements and all that. It also includes the ACLU Voter Protection Hotline, and that number is 877-523-2792. Again, that's 877-523-2792, and we'll post this in our uh, show notes. But just know that those resources are out there for you if you do have any problems at the polls. There are, are there are also ACLU poll watchers. So you can also go to one of them if you see one and they have all of this information in hand as well. And then one last thing to check in on before we get to our major topics. It was Pride Weekend in Atlanta. And Megan, I know you were there. Um, can you just kind of describe the scene for us and um, describe Abrams' history-making appearance at the at the parade? Absolutely. So Atlanta Pride is probably one of the highlights of my year. 
And um, it is always a very festive and um, uplifting atmosphere. And what was even more amazing this year is as I was laying out on the grass with some of my friends and my girlfriend watching the um, the show on the main stage, out comes Stacey Abrams. And it was just – she came out to raucous applause. Um, everyone was super happy to hear from her. And she gave a really – really um, encouraging speech about how, you know, Georgia is a state for everyone, how she supports everyone. I'm paraphrasing horribly because I cannot for the life of me remember what she actually said. I was just too thrilled in the moment um, to see that one of our gubernatorial candidates coming out on that stage and making history. She also marched in the parade, um, which was great. It was just a great time by all. And the crowd really loved and supported her. And I'm really glad that she was there. It was very encouraging. Yeah, she uh, made history as the first major party candidate to march in the Pride Parade uh, this time. Um, she It's not her first one. Both her and Stacey Evans marched in the spring, I guess, at a different Pride event in Atlanta. But this was the first the first time, you know, during the fall, the heat of the campaign season, a major party candidate uh, marched in the parade. Um, Kemp, have you heard anything about uh, Kemp's LGBT outreach? <laughs> outreach? Are you kidding? <laughs> he, he's he's advertising on Grinder. What? He is. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's news to me. I don't hang out a lot on Grinder, so there's that. Um, but uh, so, can you t- share what it said? <laughs> No, I have no idea. I just saw. I wanted to is, give you that one live because is I that a joke? That. Like that's no, a joke. I'm serious? No, I. It was on Project Q. I'll have to find it. I, I'm gonna have to ask the Google about that one. Oh. oh my gosh, I can't even imagine what he said because also I would just chalk it up to complete hypocrisy and just peddling for votes because I don't actually think that he is any kind of supportive of the LGBT movement. One last bit about Pride, Kyle. Did you know that there are actually quite a number of candidates who are marching in the parade, a couple of which were Charlie Bailey and Lucy McBath, and Charlie Bailey totally danced to Britney Spears with Lucy McBath, and there's a video, and it's amazing. He did. We have to share that. Um, I I will just say that I am a big fan of his, for, for no other reason, like if I'm just being frank, for no other reason than like he seriously was getting down at the pride parade all right well look in our uh, show notes you'll find a link to the tweet right now it's at the top of charlie bailey's twitter feed him uh, dancing with lucy mcbath to britney spears at the pride parade so uh, check that out unfortunately we can't show it to you on a podcast but get on the twitter machine and check that out it's as good as you imagine So now we'll move on to our first topic of the week. Um, So I talked to Sarah Tatanchi and Marissa McCall Dodson at the Southern Center for Human Rights about the issue of criminal justice reform. Um, So I am excited to share that conversation with you. Uh, So we're going to start our show with that today. Here we are. All right, so we're now joined by Sarah Tatanchi, Executive Director of the Southern Center for Human Rights, and Marissa McCall Dodson, the Public Policy Director, also at the Southern Center for Human Rights. Uh, thank you all so much for joining the show. 
Thanks so much for having us, Kyle. Today's discussion, we're just going to kind of take a wide look at criminal justice policy over the last few years during the Nathan Deal administration. Um, he made a lot. He he covered a lot of ground on this issue during his tenure. And so the question that I just wanted to start with with y'all is now that we're coming up on the end of his tenure in office, and criminal justice reform has been one of the big projects of his time as governor, can you just describe some of the improvements that have been made across our criminal justice policies as a state uh, during his term? Yes, absolutely. Um, So under uh, Governor Deal, we have seen significant reforms to the way in which people uh, encounter the criminal justice system because of the reforms that uh, Governor Deal and his council undertook. We are sending less people to prison annually. We are sending less people to prison who have committed nonviolent property offenses. Um, the state is, has um, a commitment to improving treatment and service uh, providers in communities. Um, so we have uh, the influx of mental health courts and substance abuse courts. Uh, they are termed accountability courts here in Georgia, just a recognition that there are things that are going on in people's lives that are not criminal that need to be addressed in community without sending folks to to prison. We have seen under his leadership uh, reforms to parole so that people who were sentenced to long prison sentences for uh, nonviolent drug offenses are able to be um, released. Um, We have seen changes to who is under correctional control. Georgia continues to be a state that has the highest rate of correctional control, uh, which includes people that are on probation or parole. So under his leadership, we have seen reforms to uh, allow for automatic termination of probation um, in certain circumstances, as well as address the predatory practices of private probation providers and making it um, a little bit protecting people who are only in the criminal justice system because of a lack of uh, financial resources. So there have been some changes to uh, address the criminalization of poverty as it relates to these private actors. Yeah, so so your office works on several sort of policy areas under this bucket of criminalization of poverty, including dealing with private private probation, bail reforms, and limits on fine, fines and fees. Can you talk about some of your work in this area and what it means for a justice system to criminalize poverty? Sure. So every day, the Southern Center for Human Rights sees in the courts and in the streets examples of how people are treated differently depending on what color their skin is and how much money they have in their pocket. Um, Our country is built on this premise of equal justice under law, but when you go into our local and our state and local courts, what you can see is that we are far from fulfilling that promise of equality. And what we have set up here in Georgia is a system Uh, that treats people very differently um, if they have the means to uh, purchase their way out of a criminal interaction, or even maybe not even a criminal interaction, maybe it's just a traffic infraction. What this actually looks like is in the case of if a person gets a traffic ticket, and if I were to get a traffic ticket, I would go to court and I wouldn't like it, but I would pay my fine that day, I'd be able to write a check, um, and I'd go home and I'd be done with it. But for a person who couldn't afford to pay that fine on the day that they go to court, they would put uh, they would be put on a payment plan under the supervision of a private probation company. 
and this is a this is a company whose entire business model is to make money by keeping people on probation for as long as possible. And so what that results in is the person who doesn't have the means to pay on the day of court winds up paying two and three and four times as much as I would because they're paying um, over a span of months with surcharges and supervision charges. And so it's a really damaging system that really traps people for no other reason than their poverty. Similarly, we see this phenomenon when it comes to uh, issues around cash bail. In many places across Georgia, uh, we have, there are kind of arbitrary, it's called, they're called bail schedules set up. So if you get arrested for something, say loitering or um, jaywalking, uh, there's a set amount of money that you need to pay if you want to be free from jail. And if you can afford to, to pay that, then you are permitted to purchase your release. But if you can't afford to pay it, then you have to just sit in jail. We believe this is fundamentally unfair. Uh, we would argue that it's unconstitutional. And we've been working really hard to change this here in Georgia, both through uh, policy advocacy at the General Assembly as well as in local jurisdictions, but also through litigation, because sometimes we actually need to file lawsuits to get folks to come to the table about this. What is the goal in, in changing those policies? Would it be like it, a complete elimination of cash bail for everyone or or some ways to curb curb that? What, what do the policy solutions look like in that area? So in the context of cash bail, I think uh, our position would be that money should never be an indicator as to whether or not someone will return to court or whether they pose a public safety risk. So the purpose of bail, just to re, you know reframe that, is to ensure that someone will be a, come back to court um, and be held accountable for the charge and that they will not pose a risk to public safety while they are in the community. And the notion that someone, that that question would turn on how much money someone has is actually ridiculous. That the concept of someone who was very affluent having $2,000, $5,000, $10,000, and that that money would be any indication of whether or not they would run or whether they would come back to court um, is a misnomer. So we would suggest that there are other conditions that can be imposed on folks to ensure court appearance and public safety that do not uh, cause wealth-based detention. So yes, we would advocate for the end of cash bail with a more responsible way to ensure that the public remains safe and that people come back to court. And, and I will just add in the context of private probation, we are also seeking the full end to the use of private probation in Georgia. Georgia is truly the national epicenter for the use of private probation in our country. And as a result, our probation population in the state is absolutely bulging at the seams. Georgia has the highest rate of correctional control in the nation, and the reason for that is because of our probation population. 80% of people on misdemeanor probation in Georgia are supervised by private companies, and these companies bring in over $10 million in just supervision fees per quarter. So this is profit on the backs of people who are some of the most vulnerable we have in our community. Um, it serves no public safety interest. Uh, it's not even effective. And we believe the time has come to end private probation in Georgia. So last week, the Supreme Court in Washington straight, Washington State struck down the state's death penalty, calling it arbitrary and racially biased. Uh, with Washington, that makes 10 states that have done away with capital punishment. But the death penalty is still in use in Georgia in many states in our region. Um, so what is your view of the current application of the death penalty in Georgia? And are there any possible changes, including completely eliminating the death penalty, that you see as possible on the horizon uh, here in Georgia? 
So the death penalty is on the decline nationwide, not only on the, in the decline when it comes to the numbers of people sentenced to death or the people who are people who are executed, but also when it comes to public support of this uh, this really dark part of who we are as a nation. Here in Georgia, it, we have a very interesting dynamic going on. Um, we are still executing people. Uh, we executed we've executed two people already in 2018. Uh, we executed one person in 2017, but we executed nine people in 2016. And actually, in 2016, uh, we executed nine of the 20 people who were who were killed nationwide um, for that year. As we are still executing people, there have been zero new death sentences given out in Georgia since 2014. In over four years, no court in the entire state of Georgia has sentenced a single person to death. And what we would argue is that the people who are being executed today, if they were to be tried by courts in this atmosphere in 2018, that they too would not be sentenced to death. And that is because we as a state, as a community have been evolving as well. We definitely see that there's still a ways to go when it comes to the death penalty here in Georgia. One of the initiatives that we've been working on is trying, even though the United States Supreme Court banned the execution of people with intellectual disabilities many years ago, uh, we believe that people with intellectual disabilities are still uh, in danger of execution here in Georgia. And so we are trying to fix that problem. Um, we also believe that it would, it would be in the public interest to raise the age for eligibility of the death penalty. There's so much scientific research um, that show that the brain isn't fully developed until the age of 25. There are many guidelines in our, in our world for what people can do at certain ages. You can't buy cigarettes until you're 18. You can't drink until you're 21. You can't serve in the military until you're 18. Um, but to have people be held accountable in this very final way um, at the age of 18 uh, is just too young. So let's talk a little bit about the election and where and where leading candidates stand on criminal justice issues. Uh, this is this is something that has been a topic on the campaign trail. And the two leading candidates for governor, Democrat Stacey Abrams and Republican Brian Kemp, they have vastly different views when it comes to many policies and criminal justice. Abrams has plans to eliminate cash bail, increase diversion and accountability courts, and decriminalize possession of marijuana. Kemp has been pretty critical of Abrams' approach on these issues, and he's focused more on increasing law enforcement activity to combat unauthorized immigration and gang violence. How do you think the outcome of this year's election will impact the sort of bipartisan buy-in on criminal justice reform that we've seen under the Deal administration of the last uh, eight years? You know, either way that the election goes, there is still going to be so much work to be done when it comes to criminal justice reform. We have been very fortunate to be riding a bipartisan wave for the last eight years and to have Governor Deal as the champion for criminal justice reform that he has been. However, there is still so much work to be done. Though we have made some advances, as Marissa detailed, we have only scratched the surface of what needs to be done. And we know that whoever is elected as governor uh, will need to be educated about these pressing issues that are affecting uh, Georgians across the state. I would just add that um, Governor Deal's criminal justice reforms have been, you know, widely praised by uh, Republicans and Democrats 
Um, he is, you know, one of the most popular governors in recent state history. And so our hope is that at least the reforms that have been made um, and uh, recognized in terms of reductions in recidivism, um, improvements in uh, contributions from people who are able to work instead of being incarcerated, that they're, that our reforms have been successful enough in Georgia to make their case themselves and that we will be able to work with whoever the next governor is to continue responsible, meaningful reforms that reduce the use of incarceration and find more appropriate uh, means of intervention. Is there like is there an existing coalition of legislators who have done good work on this issue that you think will be in their seats and sort of maintain the momentum that's been brought about un, un, under this bipartisan coalition? Or or do, does the future of this issue really hinge on how that election may turn out? So we there there should still be, and we are expecting that there will still be um, some of the leadership or uh, some of the people who will be in office at, in the General Assembly next year will have championed some of Governor Deal's reforms and um, are uh, pretty educated on the issues and on the direction that criminal justice reform needs to go in. Um, so there are policymakers and judges and you know Governor Deal's counsel, which sunsetted in June. In, in its final report, they lay out some very specific things that, that the state should consider in terms of next steps for reform. So we believe that there is enough um, interest and there will be enough of a presence at the Capitol um, in legislative sessions to come to be able to um, continue the reforms that uh, we have under Governor Deal. And I would just jump in and add that um Speaking of a coalition, uh, we are uh, the Southern Center for Human Rights is the convening organization of the Georgia Justice Reform Partnership, which is a statewide coalition of individuals and organizations. We're approaching about 100 members right now um, of people who are who are who will insist that these reforms continue into the next administration, whoever that may be. Um, and for any of your listeners who are interested in getting involved in this coalition, we have monthly meetings. We would welcome anyone to the table um, because there's still so much work to be done. So these policies are not just the product of state legislators and the governor, though, right? What What is the impact of local governments in this area, particularly in some of our bigger cities like Atlanta? What role do they play in shaping criminal justice policies and how they're applied? So like in other states in the country, um, most of the issues around how people are engaging um, in this issue is, as you said, local. Um, and so, like, for example, the city of Atlanta and Fulton County have the highest number of arrests. They have the highest number of people who um, are sent to prison, who return to prison. Um, and so local governments, um, many, of, um, who, many of which are doing the heavy lifting when it comes to volume and capacity on trying to recognize and um, identify appropriate cost-effective responses to crime, are uh, perfect uh, grounds to have conversations about what kinds of changes to policy and practice might improve outcomes. So for you, you raised uh, the city of Atlanta. I think that's a perfect example of some of the ways local governments have impacted um, this issue. Before Governor Deal, for example, before Governor Deal passed or um, signed the executive order that banned the box on state employment applications, um, this is a, a way to get people who have criminal histories into meaningful employment by not asking on the initial application about a criminal history. Um, The reason that the governor and the state was interested in taking this step was because 
the city of Atlanta and local governments across the state had already identified that as a practical policy change that could move um, people in a more productive direction. Similarly, the steps that the city of Atlanta has taken around the deprioritization of marijuana, the elimination of cash bail, the uh, pre-arrest diversion program, sending, um, trying to divert people from even a, an arrest into treatment are all opportunities for the state to see kind of firsthand what happens when those kinds of policies are implemented and they do have an impact on uh, state and local state laws in that state lawmakers will, are more likely to be willing to entertain those kinds of policy reforms that they can see how they're working on the local level. The other place that is important that is not we have not spent much time on in Georgia but is definitely a local issue is the way in which police departments in, interact with communities. And so thinking about not only pre-arrest diversion, but what kinds of opportunities for conversation and um, strengthening relationships can exist between impact communities impacted by the criminal justice system and law enforcement communities. So those are, that's another area around the state where having those kinds of conversations with local police departments and city councils can improve uh, the way in which folks are uh, encountering the criminal justice system across the state. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, Governor Deal's appointments to the state Supreme Court. Um, So he made a little bit of history as governor by being able to appoint the majority of the the court's current justices. Um, Can you just describe a little bit of what the state Supreme Court actually does. Um, I know that this may be something that's sort of a new a new issue to our to our listeners, uh, but it may be on top of mind after the recent discussion over the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. So, could you just tell us a little bit about what the state Supreme Court even does and what you think the legacy of Governor Deal appointing the majority of the court means going forward? Sure. So, twenty times since. He became governor in 2011. Uh, governor Deal had an opportunity to choose members of both the state Supreme Court and the state Court of Appeals. And of those 20 times, 18 times he chose a white person and 14 times he chose a man. We have a lot of concern about this, as do many people. Most Americans want to see a bench that includes some people like themselves people who can appreciate their lived experiences and who can understand where they're coming from. Uh, This really helps to foster public confidence in the courts. And the reason why diversity matters so much is because when the judiciary actually reflects the full community, it arrives at better decisions and justice uh, is the justice that comes out is more reliable. Um, and if you can just imagine for a minute, if we just flip the script a little bit and with respect to the Georgia Supreme Court, imagine if there were eight female justices and only one male or seven African-American justices and only two justices who are white. How would, how would that look to the community? Would that feel like they were coming into a fair hearing? Um, would that feel, uh, fill a person with confidence? And my guess is no. But the way we have it right now is that experience for people of color and women across the state. Governor Deal has made quite an impact with all of his nominations on these courts that are the highest courts in our state that take up, that are really the final arbiters um, for pressing issues of the day. You asked about how they work. So cases start in the lower courts of our state, in the um, superior courts, and they, or the state courts, and they work their way up to the Court of Appeals or the 
state Supreme Court. And it is there, and it can be any sort of issue. It could be a death penalty case. It could be a case challenge uh, about uh, about businesses competing. Um, it could be uh, like really, you name it. I, I mean, it could be about access to health care. And so for these reasons, it is incredibly important that these most important courts reflect the community that they are representing. And unfortunately, the legacy that's been left um, with Governor Deal's appointments, uh, that diversity is simply not there. Um, and are there any other important issues in this area or anything that we've discussed today that um, that we've missed or that you wanted to add on before we go? Um, I just really quickly wanted to talk about, uh, raise the issue of mandatory minimum sentencing um, as, you know, a lot of the conversations about criminal justice reform had been on, you know, nonviolent drug and property offenses, um, but we need to, in this state, have a serious conversation about the way that we send people to prison for long periods of time with no discretion to the judge. Um, and it is an issue that the council recognized as needing to be um, kind of explored. Um, it is a waste of taxpayer dollars to send folks to prison for these periods of time. So we really believe that you know one of the, the big issues that we need to take on as a state is um, the way in which people are sentenced to long um, uh, sentences to prison in, in Georgia. Um, so if our listeners would like to learn about any additional work that the Southern Center on Human Rights does or, or anything else about your work, how could they do that? Sure. Well, we would encourage your listeners to visit our website, which is www.s chr.org. Um, we're also all over social media. You can follow us uh, on Twitter at, at Southern Center. We're on Facebook and Instagram too. All right. Well, Sarah and Marissa, thank you so much for joining the show and, and walking us through these issues. Thank you so much. All right. So thank you to them for joining us um, to run through those issues in criminal justice. Um, this year, this next year after the election, I think is going to be really a really important one when it comes to criminal justice issues in the state, uh, because Governor Deal really created a lot of bipartisan momentum on criminal justice reform. And Stacey Abrams says that she wants to keep a lot of that momentum going. She actually said that she was the sort of more natural heir to Governor Deal on that issue, the more natural successor to him. Um, Brian Kemp, you know, at least from his rhetoric on the trail, he see, he sees that issue differently. And so we will see where that goes after this election. Uh, but with that, let's uh, move on to our second big topic of the week. Um, so last week, we talked briefly about Hurricane Michael making landfall off the coast of Florida and uh, bulldozing its way up through southwest Georgia. Uh, that was a storm that by the end of the week had made its way all the way up the Atlantic coast and was out to sea, uh, but it left a large path of destruction in south Georgia. One of the groups hardest hit by this hurricane were Georgia farmers. Um, the State's agriculture secretary came out uh, the other day in a press conference saying that our worst fears had been realized about the state's crops this fall, including cotton and pecans that were really significantly affected. Uh, but in the days since, 
Uh, GPB has also reported on some of the circumstances that everyday people in Southwest Georgia are dealing with. Doherty County in Southwest Georgia thinks that as many as 30,000 people in their community are going to have trouble accessing food in the wake of the storm. Um, There were long lines at defects offices for people trying to access emergency SNAP benefits. And private businesses and charities were joining with local emergency personnel to hand out food and ice and other basic necessities at abandoned grocery stores and other and other checkpoints in the area. The thing that stood out to me, though, was the reaction to this by both of the gubernatorial campaigns. Kemp toured Southwest Georgia as a part of his official duties as Secretary of State. Um, he put out a news release saying that he was touring the area to meet with elections officials to talk about their preparation for early voting, which began on Monday. And then he was back in the area on Monday morning, organizing a checkpoint for people to drop off supplies, water, food, like canned goods. Um, He was very much on the ground, visible, and talking a lot in his social media about the efforts of Georgia Power to turn the lights back on down in Southwest Georgia. For Stacey Abrams, it was kind of different. Uh, we talked about her appearance at the Pride Parade, but on Sunday morning, she also uh, appeared on Sunday news shows. And then on Monday, she began a bus tour around the state. Uh, but at least as of now, that bus tour is not planning to take her to areas impacted by the storm in Southwest Georgia. The Abrams campaign did tell us, though, that their organizers and their field offices are helping out locally. They're doing things like handing out supplies and bringing things back as evacuated organizers return back to the affected areas. And throughout her appearances on her bus tour, she has mentioned resources available to Georgians affected by the storm. Megan, what do you think about sort of the different focuses from these two campaigns? Do you think that there is a missed opportunity here from Abrams by not either not going to Southwest Georgia or not spending more time focused on it this weekend? So yes and no. I think this is kind of a catch-22. So one of the things that happens when you have somebody kind of a celebrity or somebody with a lot of media attention focused on them go through these areas is that it really gums up the already really damaged and gummed up infrastructure. Um, Because all of a sudden you're trying to find places for these people to stay and like getting um, supplies into them. And, you know, a lot of the focus gets taken away. And so you have you have issues actually that are directly caused by having people come and tour the damage. Um, So I don't know if she's put out a statement, but maybe that's her reasoning. Maybe she's going to wait till things calm down a little while for a bit and that it's easier to access and it's less distracting for her to get in there. So that's. You know, that's giving her the benefit of the doubt. Um, Otherwise, you know, another reason could be that she just straight up wasn't invited and feels that she needs to be invited to either tour it um, at, you know, with deal or as another um, in an official capacity or or with someone who is touring it in an official capacity. But also she could be getting her name out there and she could be, dear God, please not tossing paper towels at people, but, you know, actually getting her hands dirty and lending some help and lending some physical labor and she she could be down there just kind of helping people out so it i can see it going either way and i'm honestly not sure what the right answer is yeah i'm actually a little frustrated by her not having more of a presence in southwest georgia this weekend and in the early part of this week um 
you know, Abr- Abrams does not have an official capacity right now. She's not a member of the legislature anymore. Uh, her her main um, her main gig right now is is running for this office. But these counties that were hardest hit by this storm, many of them are they have majority African American populations. They are communities that are less well off than other areas of the state. The southwest corner of this state is is probably the poorest pocket of this state. And the kinds of things that are happening as a result of the storm, whether it's you have some damage to your home, you don't have access to electricity, so you have uh, issues with accessing food and cooking food. These are all things happening to the exact type of people that I think Abrams wants her government to reach out to. Um, they're the kind of people who have lower incomes who it would be very difficult to absorb even not, you know, not even like in a, not even like your house being flattened in the way that we saw a lot of places on Mexico beach in Florida. Um, but a tree through a corner of your house or, you know, rain and wind damage to your roof. Um, I'm just surprised you know, to to have seen her on the Sunday shows on Sunday morning. And I, and I think she like, got her counties confused when she was on Meet the Press on Sunday morning, because Chuck Todd asked her about the response down there. And then to have had like no visual presence, I think may have been a mistake for her. Um, not only because, particularly as it relates to African American voters in Southwest Georgia, Randolph County's down there, we talked about efforts to make it harder to vote in Randolph County, uh, but also Georgia's agriculture community, which seems to be reeling from the storm. Kemp had a lot of presence. He you knew very clearly was sort of very much there. And Abrams seems to not have been. And I think it reinforced it's it's bad for Abrams because I think it reinforces this underlying concern about whether or not her priority is on Georgia and is on this governor's office. She often gets critiqued as that not being her priority because of her focus on raising outside money and building a national media profile. Um, in some ways, I think those criticisms are unfair, but I do think that this was an opportunity for her to bat those away and say, of course, Georgia is my number one focus. And I think it was an opportunity that was missed for her. Yeah, I definitely do think that she maybe could have been a bit more, even if she couldn't or didn't want to be there physically, she could have been a bit, a bit more vocal about her support and directing people to help and that sort of a thing. I will say that having lived through a few hurricanes when I was in Louisiana. You know, I was never so directly affected that I was the one that was really needing help. But I can say that when I did try to help, um, for example, after Katrina, a lot of it was just trying to not be in the way. It's, it's really tough. And the other thing that happens is I would also, if I were her, I'd worry about giving the impression of like just coming in and shaking some hands and using people and then getting out of Dodge. You know, so I do think that if she... I, and I hope Kemp is doing this carefully. If he's down there shaking hands, kissing babies and saying, we're going to help you, then he also has to follow up with actual help. Because if not, it's just a stunt. And that could actually, you know, really bite somebody in the ass. And so if Abrams is, you know, if, if that's her concern, then like I understand it. But I think that if you're not going to be there physically, you need to at least kind of quote unquote be there mentally and emotionally and be putting more energy into it than she currently is. Yeah, I mean, the one bit of reporting I did see was that she she's kicking off her bus tour and she was in Macon today, Monday. 
Um, and so she was talking about her experience living through hurricanes when she lived in Southern Mississippi, but, you know, Macon, while I think they were, you know, they had some power outages. I mean, there were power outages all the way up sort of the Southern swath of Georgia, like all the way up to Augusta in Eastern Georgia. Um, but it, it was really those communities in the Southwest part of the state that, that took the worst of it. And so I, you know, I just, I think it just stands out. It's, it's a, it's a tough line between being present and politicizing a tragedy. Um, but I do think that at least in her case, she may have erred towards not having a lot of presence at all. I wonder if that will end up mattering in the end. So did you see that Governor Deal actually extended the state of emergency in Georgia to 11.59 p.m. on Election Day? Yeah, I did. And I actually, I reached out to the governor's office about this on Friday when when he issued this executive order doing that, because I thought, you know, initially it was, it was uh, promoted as like a 21-day extension of the emergency declaration, 21 days, three weeks, sounds like a, a perfectly round number. But yeah, the state of emergency was extended to 11.59 p.m. on election day. Um, I reached out and I'm still waiting on a response to see if there was any significance to that. But the one thing that comes to mind, particularly with how you saw Kemp talking with local elections administrators during during the time that he was down there on Friday and on Monday, that this is meant to ensure that there are emergency funds available in the in the case that you need to move a precinct or that you need to try to repair a precinct between now and election day, just to ensure that voting uh, hopefully is not interrupted by by this storm. Now, does the state of emergency in Georgia come with any sort of like martial law type measures like curfews and things like that? Now, I think communities still get to make some of those decisions. Um, the emergency declaration tends to be uh, the window to opening up access to emergency funds. Um, and so sometimes that's state-level emergency funds, and sometimes that's a declaration that's a signal to the federal government that this is where funds need to be allocated. Gotcha. Um, but with that, I think we are going to leave that there. Uh, so, Megan, thanks for joining for another show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a great week. Yep, we'll talk to you all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all. Thank you.